0: Everybody know what the butterfly effect is? Everybody familiar with this? In short, it's the way of explaining um, how little things affect um, other things, you know, that are much bigger way, way, way down the line. Um, there are some important cataclysmic events that can be tracked all the way back to like some little, you know, beginning, which is crazy. A proverbial butterfly flaps its wings in Asia and causes a hurricane in Florida. It's that that kind of thing. Basically, it's a way of... Un- Uh, explaining the uncanny way that things can be connected, that things are connected. Esther's family has a miracle kind of butterfly effect story that we we love to tell. Um, Esther's uh, grandfather was born with his feet deformed. He was crippled. Um, His feet were actually kind of pointing backwards, uh, so they were twisted and and, uh, deformed in the the whole thing. His leg bones, his joints, everything. The doctors told his mother he'd never walk um, again. Uh, definitely not right. Um, and so Esther's grandmother was a, was a, one of those crazy women of faith, one of those old school praying women. Um, and she didn't accept the report that the doctors gave her. And, uh, so she gathered some like minded people around and they prayed. And, uh, the baby was laying on his back, kicking his legs like babies do. And as they were praying, his legs kept getting straighter and straighter. And by the end of this prayer meeting, his legs were, were straight. Um, and, uh, at, like, perfectly straight and normal. Um, and, uh, except his feet were messed up. His feet, his toes like curled up. It was almost like he had an extra joint in his toes that went the wrong way. His toes kind of curled up on the end. And, uh, for uh, grandpa's feet and toes, um, were the only thing left of this weird miracle that, uh, that's like one of the, the craziest miracles their family talks about. Um, Everyone was overwhelmed, obviously, at what they just witnessed. People were crying. People were going nuts. But there was this lingering curiosity about his feet. Like, why? Like, if God's going to straighten his legs, why not the toes? Like, why not the, the feet? It's so so strange. Um, and that's what grandma always said. That's his lifelong reminder of what God did for him. He wasn't old enough to know. So every time he feels his toes, he knows that God healed me. It was this, this crazy reminder. Um, well, it turns out that these oddly shaped feet didn't um, affect his development at all. He walked normal, ran normal, did everything normal, was a totally normal guy, except for he had to wear either worn-out shoes or, like, loose floppy loafers because normal shoes hurt his feet real bad. Uh, Until World War II broke out in Europe. And weirdly enough, in those days, um, young men thought it was kind of an honor to stand up and defend their country. Um, It's strange, I know. Um, And Esther's grandpa was one of those, you know, responsibility-driven pillars of Toxic masculinity that believed sacrifice and duty was important. Um, and he wanted to do his part. And so, um, but he feared his feet were going to get in the way. He had heard rumors. Um, but to his excitement, as long as he wore oversized boots, they let him in. And which is rare. They would like throw you out for flat feet. But somehow he got in and was excited that he got in. So he joined the Army. He was assigned a, a position as a paratrooper. Uh, and his, his company eventually got um, called to airdrop into enemy territory. Um, but there was a problem as they had moved from their original, uh, camp in country to their staging, um, their staging area, uh, his gear had gotten left behind and, uh, which was not uncommon and they had plenty of gear. So normally they just regeared you and, and you went, but, um, he's had these special boots His had his bigger oversized worn out boots and they could not find boots that would work for his feet. Um, so he got, uh, left behind. He, he didn't get to go with his company, he got reassigned to a new company, um, uh, and incidentally, this is why they don't let people in for flat feet and stuff, because these kind of situations can happen. So in the end, um, he was forced to stay behind and reassigned to a new company because his company had already was ready to take off, and he had to wait on his boots, and he was devastated uh, until he got the news that um, the plane carrying his entire company was shot down. There was not a single survivor. Um, he was obviously devastated, grief-stricken that, that his company had had been killed, um, but he was also weirdly embarrassed and grateful Um, and and probably just a little awestruck at the wisdom and plan of God that the one curiosity left behind from this um, amazing miracle he'd received as a baby was um, this thing that prompted his mom to tell the story over and over and over again turned out to be the thing that saved his life. Um, This strange little coincidence um, uh, saved his life. Instantly, he went on to have his life saved in some other weird, crazy ways that I don't have time to tell, and my wife would give me the stink eye back there. Um, she told me all morning, no bunny trails. Um, <laughs> but another one that I've told here often was when I was on my way to high school to my job waiting tables, I'm sitting at a stoplight tying my tie because I wore a tie um, to wait tables, and, and when I looked up, the light was green, and so I engaged the clutch to take off, and the truck died. It was a little Nissan truck. I never killed this truck. Like It, was, it had the easiest clutch in the world, so it was really strange that this thing died. And so I, I, you know, step on the clutch, start it, um, and I'm getting ready to take off, and this giant 70s, late 70s, early 80s model Oldsmobile flies through the light, the passengers all curled up expecting impact, you know, and I kind of scream some, you know, jerk, you know, something mean, probably worse than that, but, um, and he was probably going 20 miles an hour over speed limit, like flew by, you know, and, uh. So I yell something and engage clutch, take off and drive to work. I get about halfway there when I realize if my truck doesn't die in that moment, I'm sitting in the middle of that intersection getting T-boned by 3,000 pounds of American steel. Like, and, uh, and it would have hit my driver's side. Like, by the time I get to work, I'm having like a full-on worship service in the cab of my little truck. Like, holy cow, God just saved my life. And, uh, start believing in angels and the whole thing. You know, that's, I'm in. And, uh, but, the, where the butterfly effect really gets fun is, is when you're sitting around a room with your kids, all your kids in, in the kitchen, and they're all, and I'm telling this story, and I got all their eyes, and I'm like, and just think, that close, and none of you would be here. <laughs> like, none of you would exist at all if not for those toes. Not a one of you would be here to hear this story if my truck doesn't die. Look at how much your life teeters on razor's edges every day. Um, but it's weird how 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 thin those those margins of error um, can be. A million other things can be brought up every single day. Can you imagine how much your very existence hinges on on uh, one particular moment going exactly the way it needs to go, and it couldn't have gone any other way. It's crazy. Now, I bring this up today for a couple of reasons. We're starting a new study, um, that is going to take us through the rest of spring, summer, and into the fall. And it's a major step in our core strength that we're focusing on this year. Um, we're going to be studying the book of Romans. And, uh, and this, uh, book is absolutely foundational to the Christian faith, maybe more than any other book in the Bible. Um, this is, this is responsible for the development of Christianity and really Western civilization. Like a lot comes down to this book. Um, and, uh, and this book is not only kind of a weird butterfly effect, kind of serendipitous origin, the way that it was written, the reason it was written. Um, considering how monumental this book turned out to be, it's kind of strange how it came about, um, which we'll get into in a minute. But this book, um, also, more than anything else, describes and explains the absolute sovereignty of God. Probably no other book does it as well as, as Romans, the, the power and the goodness of God. Um, which is the only thing that can keep like all the million butterfly effects in line. Um, having a good strong faith in the sovereignty of God allows you to sleep at night. <laughs> if you think of all the millions of things that could have gone different to blow things up in your life, um, you need a good grasp on the, on the, on the sovereignty of God for your sanity. Um, I believe that. So here's our plan. I'm going to um, work really hard as we study this book to not make this a Bible college class. Um, which is easy to do. Um, I want us to gain a good understanding of the structure of the book, and and uh, and we're going to overview the actual content. But we could park in this book for five years. Like this is a, there's a lot here, um, and and we don't really want to do that. Um, at least not this year. This year we're trying to build our core and hopefully draw closer to God, um, who loves us, and draw closer to one another and be His body. Um, so I'm going to work really hard not to kind of bog down in the study part. Um, but I'm also going to pray every week that, that, you know, God, whatever, find what God has to say to us out of it. Um, what he wants to speak to us for right here, right now in the world we live in. Um, so we're going to try, uh, not to turn this into a classroom. Um, even though, um, there's plenty to do here. Like, we don't want to, we do want to get the core, but we don't want to, uh, completely bog down. So I currently have this laid out for about 19 weeks. Um, and this is week number one. And, uh, our plan for this morning is to get a little background of the book. Um, why it's important, why this book is different, what makes it special. And we're going to walk through kind of a visual outline um, of the book, and then I might get a little preachy at the end <laughs> and figure out how we should respond. Sound good? Okay, let's get to work. Book of Romans written by Paul. Um, we know that. He announces himself early in the book. And it's unique uh, amongst all of his other writings um, because Paul did not know these people. Um, that's what makes the book special. Typically, Paul would plant churches. Um, And he used and then he would, you know, move on to plan another church and he would use the most advanced technology of the day, letter writing. It really hadn't been around that long. Um it was kind of a new thing to trust a written thing to, to to communicate a very important letter. And so if it was today, Paul was basically live streaming. He was taking the most like the newest, most cutting edge technology and using it to advance the gospel. But he would spend a lot of time in these churches and then he would when he would leave, he would stay connected through letter writing. He would write them letters. Um to, uh, to, to answer problems. And, and generally there was a reason he wrote a letter. Uh, he was either, you know, there was problems he had heard about that he wanted to address. Um, he, he wrote a big thank you note for a gift that he'd received. Um, he was preparing churches for a visit that was coming up, um, encouraging churches who had heard that he got arrested. He wanted to let them know that he's doing okay and that he's actually joyful um, in the way things are turning out. So there was all, But there was always a, a specific purpose of the book um, that 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 drove its its authorship, um, but that also means that book was built on top of relationship. So that book was was written because he had spent time there, taught them good doctrine, and then he could he could send the letter just to make references to things. Um, he didn't have to lay out the gospel clearly in these letters because he had done that in person. We have no idea what all he preached. Um. Uh, But in in most of his letters, we have to kind of piece together why he was writing, what the background might have been, what the context of the letter is. And scholars and and theologians have done a great job of doing that over the last 2,000 years. Um, But think about this. He was in Corinth for two years. That's a lot of sermons in two years. I mean, that's assuming they only preached on Sundays like we do. I doubt they did. That's a lot of Bible studies, a lot of sermons, a lot of context that goes into those letters that he didn't have to say all over again. You know, he, he had spent two years there. Um, we don't know if he did core strength stuff. We don't know if he did evangelism stuff. Like, we don't really know what he taught every single day that he was teaching. Maybe he used a lot of the Old Testament in his sermons. Maybe he quoted the other apostles a lot in his sermons. We just don't know. And so when we read these letters, we're, just, we're assuming they're built upon on something that we can't really see. Um, And so when when he writes these letters to deal with their issues, he doesn't go back and have to fully re-explain the gospel again because he spent so long there um, doing that. And so sometimes we read something in like Corinthians and we have a tendency to put this heavy weight on it, thinking that this was super important to Paul. And really, it was just Paul answering a problem they were having. He may have never talked about that when he was there for two years preaching every week. So we we have to be careful in in some of um, the other books. Uh, and almost all Paul's letters have this same issue. They're built on a context that we have to decipher from from that. But Romans is different. Romans is not like that. It starts this way. He says, "This is a letter uh from Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach and sent out to preach the good news. God promised this good news a long long ago through his prophets in the whole in the holy scriptures. Man, my reading today. Um the good news is about his son. Uh, In his earthly life, he was born into the king of King David's family line, and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, the Lord through Christ. God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. And you are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. I am writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his uh, own holy people. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Let me be be the first. Let me say first that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith in him is being talked about all over the world. God knows how often I pray for you. Day and night I bring you uh, and your needs in prayer to God, whom I serve with all my heart. By spreading the good news about his son. One of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come at last to see you. For I long to visit you so I can bring you some spiritual gift and will help you grow strong in the Lord. When we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith, but I also want to be encouraged by yours. I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to visit you, but I was prevented until now. I want to work... Among you and see spiritual fruit, just as I've seen among other Gentiles. For I have a great sense of obligation to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, the educated and uneducated alike. Um, so I'm eager to come to you in Rome too and preach the good news. Uh, so at the writing of this letter, Paul has never been to the Roman church. Um, he's never been there. He's just heard of them. He knows they're out there. Um, he, he's, he says, you know, uh, everybody's heard of your faith. Everybody's heard of. Of your church, apparently their faith has been talked about everywhere, uh, but Paul's never been there. In fact, based on church history and the corroboration from the Book of Acts, when Paul writes this letter, none of the apostles had been to Rome. Um, like there's there's no evidence that anybody had traveled to Rome uh, to plant this church, which begs the question: Where did it come from? If no missionary evangelist had gone to Rome um, to share the gospel, uh, how did this church, whose reputation has grown all over the empire, first begin, um, and, and that's where the book uh, kind of becomes fun, uh, because it starts right after Easter, just like, just like we are, um, and uh, not long before uh, this, the moment we're getting ready to talk about Jesus risen from the dead, uh, he, and then he ran into a couple of his followers, followers on a road, called the Road of Emmaus, and, uh, and, and they're, they're upset, so this is just brand new, they don't even know he's risen yet. And the Bible says this, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets and explained from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Uh, so immediately after the resurrection, this is like immediately the job of making sense out of everything that had just happened fell upon the disciples. Like this job number one is to figure out what on earth just happened. Like we know what happened, but... They have to go back to the scripture and kind of rewrite everything like we everything we thought was supposed to happen changes. And so the, the, the idea of going back and restudying everything and realizing God has been talking about this moment for a long time. That would have taken some doing that would have taken some time, some study. Uh, and I have to be honest this week, like when I for the first time ever, I had this unique um, realization this week. Uh we put so much emphasis on Holy week here at open table uh, that I'm on as my event horizon does not go any further than that. Like my ability to see into the future stops at Easter. Like I don't, I don't think beyond that um, at all. If you were to like get inside my mind and look around, you would assume Jesus comes back at Easter because there's just nothing but empty calendar dates after that. Like there's nothing um, that happens in my imagination. Um, so there's always this kind of coming back to reality, feeling after Easter that, but this year it was kind of jarring. Um, we had such a great Holy week. We had a long, powerful, um, worship practice Wednesday night. And in fact, we had a date night Tuesday night. So any time to get to be together with my wife is awesome. I better throw that in there first. Then worship practice Wednesday night, we had a great Monday, Thursday meal, powerful time of worship Friday night, amazing Easter morning celebration. And our house was full, um, for Easter dinner. Um, and, uh, and I would have just easily just kind of ridden that high for a while. Like just, oh, man, I love Easter. This is awesome. And, uh, and who doesn't love a good mountaintop, right? Like that's, the, that's what it's all about. In fact, we talked Wednesday night with the youth about Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. Basically, when he sees him going, it's awesome we're here. Let's set up monuments right here. This is it. Let's stay in this moment. We'll just set up some tents and live here on the mountaintop uh and we'll just memorialize it. This is it. And we all have a tendency to do that. When we have an awesome moment, man, we just want that to be it. We want to stay there forever. Uh and that's where I was on Sunday. Like I was I was on a high. Uh, But man, Monday morning was waiting with a vengeance. Like it was a it was rough. For the first time ever I thought about how fast the turnaround for the apostles must have been. Like you're in the excitement of Jesus raising and all like and I'm sure you could have sat in that wonder forever and almost immediately you got to they're back to studying the scripture they're trying to figure out what to do Peter preaches a message 3,000 people get saved you know that's a mess what do we now do with 3,000 people we've been around for like three minutes like and now we've got 3,000 people to sort out they have to hire new people and all that drama then the persecution comes it's like they didn't have any time to breathe they went like straight from Easter into the work like almost immediately and that weird breakneck progression is important to this study this morning believe it or not because Um that's where the roots of this of this book and this church come from. Um in that very first Easter that very first Pentecost sermon, so the very first Christian sermon ever preached, um they have Easter, they spend a little bit of time with Jesus, he leaves and they get filled with the Holy Spirit, and they come out to preach this very first message. It says this, on that on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames of tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, Uh, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Uh, And that time uh, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. And when they heard that loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own language being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. Uh, how can this be, they exclaimed. These people are from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Um, here we are, uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the providence of Asia, Phygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Sinai, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts of Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own language about the wonderful things God has done. So historians assume this church in Rome started right here at the birth of the church in Acts. There are people from Rome. Um, it says the, the areas uh, are visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Jerusalem um, was full of Jews this day who live all over the Roman Empire. They're called diaspora Jews, Jews who had scattered out of uh, Israel a long time ago when foreign kings had conquered. And they went and lived elsewhere in the Roman Empire. Um, but Pentecost is a pilgrimage festival. There's a couple, three pilgrimage festivals in the Jewish calendar where no matter where you live, you're supposed to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate them. You're not really supposed to celebrate them where you live. You're supposed to come back and do it. And so uh, on these pilgrimage festivals, Jerusalem's always packed with people. And, and that seems to be what's happening here. There's people. Cause we find out later they don't even speak the same. They only speak the right. Well, we find out here too. They don't even speak the same language. Like there's, they don't speak Aramaic like most of the Jews in Israel do. Um, they speak whatever language. From, so they've probably been there multi-generational. And they're back, and uh, and they hear Peter preach this very first message. And, uh, and we don't know how long they stayed to get like a grounded in the apostles' faith. We don't know how deep the apostles' understanding was yet. This was going to take time to flesh out. And so this church um, didn't have a lot of time to build up their core strength. Uh, they're here for the festival. They get saved. They go back to Rome. And we assume they started a church because there's no evidence of anybody else going to do it. And we have, you know, a paper trail back to the day of Pentecost. We're a bunch of Romans who are there to celebrate Pentecost, get saved, and go back to Rome. And so... Uh, There's a good chance, and they were mostly, it says they were Jews and converts to Judaism, so most likely they went home and dug through the Torah themselves. They went home and studied the Old Testament, looked for the places where this understanding of Messiah was all through the Old Testament, and and probably fleshed it out a lot on their own. Uh, But Paul is not one to leave things to chance. Um, And this is why the book of Romans is such a big deal. Paul has no idea what the Roman church actually believes, he has no idea what they came up with. As they went home and studied after the day of Pentecost. Um, he's never, uh, um, listened to their pastor preach. He doesn't know what they talk about on Sunday mornings. Uh, I'm sure he went to their webpage, but it was probably vague and generic. Um, probably would have caught a live stream or two, except the signal was terrible in Corinth. So, um, and so Paul has no context on which to bound or, or, or form an, an understanding of what the Roman church believes what they think, what they, what they know. Uh, and he cannot take for granted that they've figured it out on their own. And so uh, there's no agenda, no background necessary, other than Paul wants to make sure they understand the gospel. That's really the only motive for this book. He wants them to be well-grounded. And can you see why that's a big deal to us? Now, um, we don't have to know anything about his previous relationship with this church. We don't have to uncover what his motive for writing it is, what, his, what, what answers, questions he's trying to answer um, in this book. We don't have to wonder about what his previous visits were like, what, what his relationship was like. None of that. Just Paul's own statement of faith that he explains to this church that he's never met, but he knows they've met Jesus. And so I honestly don't think it's even safe um, to, to study deeply the rest of Paul's writings until you get a good grasp on Romans because I think Romans basically represents what he would have been teaching while he was there in person. He would have taught the gospel in this form, and then everything else is him asking questions that pop up as you as you try to live and flesh um, that out. Romans is the foundation, um, but there's something else powerful um, in in Paul's reason for writing this book uh, that I kind of want to leverage to get just a little bit preachy for a second. <laughs> As I've established, Paul has never met these people. Uh, he didn't start this church. He did not have any responsibility to this church. These aren't his people, so to speak. These aren't his spiritual children that he, he has to feel responsible for. Except, in Paul's eyes, they are. Um, he feels like these are fellow believers and I'm responsible to them. And we, we have to carry that attitude, um, both as believers and here at Open Table. Open Table. Um, we need to help in our kids' programs like uh, elementary, preschool, nursery. We need bodies. We, we, uh, we have several workers downstairs who work almost every week of the month. We have moms who come to church just to basically wind up watching their kid in front of the TV downstairs wondering why they didn't just do that at home. Um, we, we could use help. We have, we have missionary friends in China. They need help, and it's super easy to Take an attitude of, well, that's not my people. Those aren't my kids. I've raised my kids. I'm done. That's not, that's not our church. Blah, blah, blah. But Paul didn't have that attitude. And, and if he had had that attitude, we wouldn't have a book of Romans. Paul is like, I don't even know these people. I have no responsibility for these people. But I love these people. And I want to help these people. And I want to grow these people. And so he writes a book that becomes foundational to our church. And we have to have that attitude. It's not about us. Um, it's not about uh, you know just our growth and what we like and what's good for us. We should come to church ready to bless other people, ready to be a blessing, ready to, to serve and give. Um, so Paul cared about the whole body. Um, he cared about the next generation. He cared about um, what came next. He didn't just want things to be good upstairs. He cared about what was going on downstairs too. Want to make sure that they were growing and experiencing God and learning good, solid truth as well. Um, so if you already serve downstairs, you can basically just sit there self-satisfied and look smug um, while everybody else feels guilty. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but, a, but a huge part of the reason this book is written, um, uh, uh, the, the, the the content of this book, as we're going to go through it, I believe a huge part of that means, you know, it comes down to looking outside yourself. Like this book would not exist if Paul didn't look outside himself, outside of his little circle of responsibility and go, you know, I need a wider circle. I need to think about more people um, than just me. The gospel message that... Um, we've given ourselves to, and if you haven't, you need to do that, um, isn't just about us getting to heaven. It's about joining God on mission um, and to reach a bunch of people who simply uh, aren't your responsibility. They're not, but they are. And that's the that's the point. Um, so if kids ministry is not for you, that's fine. But find a way to be a blessing. Find a way to, to bless um, somebody. Um, our family is obviously our first and primary ministry. That will always be the case. Don't skip out on that. Um, but, uh, but as we study the book of Romans, remember, this is here because somebody went out. Somebody did something. Um, so that's why we have the book of Romans, because Paul did that. He took that seriously. Um, and it's why the book of Romans is so important as well. It's kind of weird to lay out the background context of a book, as basically there is no background context. <laughs> like, that's why it's so important, because there's no real story behind it other than Paul wanted to write the gospel with no context, um, with no, no history, no background, um, to give us a solid foundation. And that's important to us. That's why it's, it's so key. Now, the layout of the book is awesome. And it's, the, it's logical progressions, uh, kind of thought for thought, thought on top of thought. Construction um, has kind of driven and inspired like Western Thought, like the way we think. Western epistemology is built on the book of Romans. The the logical progression that happens um, in this book is is the way we think in the West. Um, It's very different from the narrative-driven style and parabolic poetry that the Jews used. They used a very different style of communicating truth. They didn't do the thought upon thought. They used a lot of poetry, a lot of visualization, a lot of uh, um, uh, parable and, and, uh, and storytelling. Um, i don 't have time to break down all the different beautiful ways the Bible talks about it 's one of the amazing things about the Bible is it it has so many different ways of communicating and teaches us to communicate so many different ways you can You can um, learn to communicate emotional truths very well, the kind that defy logical explanation. The Bible does that and it does it beautifully. You can learn to communicate actual factual information that builds on a solid reliable understanding of truth. The Bible does that, and it does it amazingly. You can learn to communicate growth and change over time. The Bible does that amazingly. When you track David's life and his art through his life, it's amazing how much he changed from when he was young to when he was old. You can learn good storytelling with all of its motivational qualities. The Bible does a great job of doing that. You can learn how language shapes the identity of a people. You can learn how to grasp and and disseminate wisdom that is both lofty and accessible. That's hard to do. The Bible does an amazing job of that. You can learn how language can be used to grasp and wield power. The Bible explains that to us. You can learn how sometimes actions are more powerful than language. The Bible definitely explains that to us. And above all, you can learn how many ways um, language can communicate and be linked to love. Um, And the Bible uh, does a great job of that. And I'm sure that just scratches the surface, but it is important to be aware of the kind of language you're reading when you read your Bible. Um, because it, it if you try to read poetry um with the same eyes you study Romans, you're gonna get messed up. Like some of the some people try to be super literal with some of the poetic um text of the Bible and it gets weird if you do that. If you don't let it be what it is, um you can get really wonky. But Romans is is as western and contemporary and logical as you can get, and we love that about it. Um, Paul is not being poetic. He's not using a ton of metaphor and symbolism. Um, and when he does, he does it to reinforce a point, And then he does it like any good Westerner was. He explains to you exactly what the metaphor means. He doesn't just leave it hanging there poetically for you to figure out. Um, he is communicating very clear truth line by line. And the reason I belabor this and um, all the varieties of ways the Bible speaks is we can get into, um, when we get into the structure of this book, we can see how many multiple ways the Bible tells the same story. And that's what I think is really cool about this book. Let me explain what I mean about that. Um, The image or metaphor that I use to outline the book of Romans is the Old Testament tabernacle in the wilderness. Um, This is kind of a drawing of it, what it might have looked like. And uh, it had a very specific structure. If you don't know, the tabernacle was a structure the Israelites built um, at the instruction of Moses... um, for a place of worship. Uh, they first built it in the wilderness uh, while at the Mount of, uh, foot of Mount Sinai. It took about a year. They would camp there for a year. But this gigantic edifice um, was also mobile and was a place of worship for um, the entire time Moses was in the wilderness with the people all the way until King Solomon when King Solomon built the temple. So that's like 350, 400 years. This is where worship happened. So basically like the entire life Um, of America from when the pilgrims came to now, like that's about how long this was their church, um, their, their church building anyway. Um, but this structure was way more than just a place, um, to gather and worship. The tabernacle was a process. Um, and it, it it was very, very orderly and had to be done in a, in a very particular way. Um, so the, uh, so we're going to be discussing over the next 19 weeks. I'm not going to go super deep into this. Um, but, uh. Other than to say, you didn't just walk into the tabernacle and have church like we do. You don't just walk in the door and gather um, to worship uh, and, and learn. Um, you flow through progressively in a very um, specific way, starting at the door. You had to start at the door. And uh, at the door of the tabernacle where the priest um, or, uh, or sometimes an ordinary Israelite or whatever would bring their sacrifice uh, and depending on what they were paying for, whether it's sin or, a, or, or ritual uncleanliness. And you would lay your hands on the animal and ritualistically pass your sins to the animal. Um, and to do that, it, it, it wasn't like some generic kind of magical thing where you just put your hands on it and it just happened. Um, here, kill this thing instead of me. That's not what's really going on. You have to name and confess your sin. That was how you passed your sin to the animal. You declared what you did and what you're making a sacrifice for. So you have this, this confession that happens just outside the tabernacle at the door. You have to confess your sins, lay your hands on an animal, and that animal is going to die as a sacrifice for that sin. And the priest would take the animal straight into the altar. Um, and at the altar, the animal um, who now bears your sin um, is killed. And depending on the purpose of the sacrifice, either fully burned on the altar or parts were burned and the priest would eat, would cook and eat the other parts, um, depending on what was going on, the priests and Levites. Uh, and, and so after you, you would confess your sin at the door, you'd go in, your your offering would be sacrificed and burned on the altar, uh, and then you would turn, after that, the, the priest at this point would go um, to the laver, which was this big bathtub, sacrifices, messy work, and all that blood and ash and yuck needed to be washed off. And the priest would wash um, after the killing at the labor, at this big pool, pond, or bathtub. So you confess, you sacrifice, and you wash. Um, And next the priest would go into um, what was called the holy place. It was inside the the bigger tent. Um, And this was a place of worship. Um, And it was filled with all kinds of symbols and reminders of Israel's past, and the story of God, and you would basically worship by reliving those memories. There was, there was showbread to represent the manna. There was um, uh, bitter herbs to represent your tears and salt water and, and things to remind you of all God had done in setting his people free. Not unlike the way we take communion. We gather in this remembrance, this remembering um, thing. Uh, Jesus said you know, that we would remember this moment. Paul came along in Corinthians and said that every single time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we declare, we remember, we preach the death of Christ. Um, we're once again bringing the death of Christ up as an act of worship. That's what they would do in the holy place. They would go relive what God had done bringing them out of Egypt. And, uh, and that was an act of worship. So while the priest in the holy place having confessed their sin, made their sacrifice, cleaned up, um, he could come freely into worship and celebrate in the holy place. And then once a year, this only happened once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the, the high priest um, would do all those other things. Um, he, would, he would confess his sin. He would make his sacrifice. He would clean up in the labor. He'd come and worship in the holy place. Um, uh, and all that was personal. It was, to, it was to make him ready. And then he would go through the curtain, the veil, um, which was this separation that happened between the holy place and the next room. Uh, and that stayed closed all year, honestly, as a protection for the people um, so that God's presence wouldn't destroy them. Uh, in their unholiness, except on one day, one day a year, the priest would go beyond the curtain into what's called the holy of holies, um, and this is where the presence of God dwelt. And it was it was awesome, um, or as awesome as that experience might have been, um, it was it was never for the purpose of like going in and just enjoying the presence of God. Like it was a fearful thing; they were scared to do it. They were they would actually tie a rope around their waist when they would go in in case the presence of God killed them. Somebody could drag him out without risking going into the presence of God themselves. And so they had these little bells so you could hear him jingling while he was in there. And if the, you heard a thump and the jingling stopped, you knew to pull on the rope. Like that guy didn't make it. And it did happen a couple of times. Like we've got stories of Aaron's sons going in wrong and they died. And so people took this really, really seriously. This is a big deal. Um, but you didn't, so you didn't just go in for no reason. Like, oh, I love the presence of God. Like we do. They didn't do that. Like, it was scary. And you, the only reason you went in, because this was the one turn, time of year, you turned around and blessed the nation. This was the, the blessing of the year. You, so you go in, you, you confess your sin, you make your sacrifice, you get cleaned up, you worship God, and then you turn and, and, and bless the nation. You confess the sin of the nation for the past year, you bless the upcoming year, and this is like the biggest, blessing um, for the people for the entire year. And this entire process was acted out over and over and over again, um, at least 40 times while they were in the wilderness. And then however long they did it in the promised land. Um, and eventually this process, because the process stayed the same, moved to the temple and the temple worked the same way. They'd stop at the outer court you confess their sin. You go into the altar, you go into the labor, you go into the holy place and the holy of holies. And the cool thing um is this process is more than just like a religious exercise. Um it's it's more than just God going, This is the way I want things done because it's the way I want things done And like we do with our kids, like because I'm the dad, that's why. Like that wasn't what God was doing. This is telling a story. This is this is preaching a sermon. Uh and twelve to fifteen hundred years later, Paul comes along and he lays out this book that was designed to establish the gospel for a people who may or may not have had a full understanding of it. And the way that he lays it out is fascinating. In chapters 1 and 2, and about half of the third chapter, I mean, remember there were no chapters in the original, so um, that, those were added much later. But the first thing Paul establishes is the presence of sin. Um, uh, and you could say he stands there and confesses sin. In chapter 1, he talks about the natural inclination towards sin that all humans have and the downward spiral yeah, that That starts as simply as they chose not to worship and honor God, and then it spirals down to to about as as, as bad as it gets, which is you know I think we 're all too familiar with today in chapter two, he gets kind of funky because he turns on the religious people um, who 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 like to read chapter one and point at him and go, "Yeah, look how messed up people get. look at that look at that here 's how he starts chapter two it 's kind of fun. You may think you can condemn such people <laughs> he 's talking to us now. Um, But you are just as bad. You have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, are you you are condemning yourself? For you who judge others, do these very same things. Like that sucks. Like you know, like because he sits there and he talks about how bad people can get, and man, we love doing that. That's so fun to do. Like and, and you see the really bad stuff on the news and you're like, Man, this, Jesus has gotta come back soon. Look at those people. What a, that's gross. And and we do that and then Paul turns around at the beginning of chapter two and Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you pointing at those people? Guess what? Now you're condemned. Like he throws us right in with that. The wicked people are toast. The churchy people are toast. And if you feel like maybe, maybe you're one of those people who can walk that razor's edge like between like Worshipping Jesus, but not getting judgy. If you think you, that's you, awesome. Chapter 3 is for you. Because um, in chapter 3 it says, For everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. I don't know why he didn't just lead with that, but like he made sure we all got caught in that net. You may think um, you're doing okay, but you're not. Paul confesses everybody at the door. So we're all at the door going, Yes, I'm a sinner. Absolutely. I cannot squeeze through that net. You got me. And he actually goes through the none that seek God, none that, like he gets really specific, quoting some of the Psalms um, in chapter 3, but, but, uh, but he makes sure that everybody is caught in the, in the net of sin at the door of the tabernacle. And the very next verse Paul uses, Paul uses after condemning all of us for our failures is this, yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And we're at the altar. We've moved from the gate into the altar with our sacrifice. Our sacrifice is no longer goats and bulls and rams. It's now Jesus. And the very next verse after Paul uses to confess all of our sins at the gate moves us to the altar. Um, where the priests would actually make sacrifices for the sins that they had confessed in the door, Paul says Jesus becomes that sacrifice for us. And he spends a couple chapters unpacking how that works, um, how that sacrifice is applied by faith, and how um, these examples of people in the Old Testament really weren't that different. And and so he spends uh, really the rest of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 unpacking what it means for Jesus to be our sacrifice. And it's all about that. And then in chapter five, um, he uh, he he talks about the new reality, the new peace that that, that, that sacrifice brings us. The new um, that because of that sacrifice, we're now at peace with God. One of my favorite chapters is Romans five because I've never really lived like I have peace with God. I always feel like there's a like I'm. And, um, you know, and so Paul saying, and you, you're not at peace with He's on your team. He's cheering you on. Like, he's, he's, your, he's your greatest cheerleader. That's a weird concept for me. So I have to go back to Romans 5 all the time. But, um, but then in chapter 6, Paul shifts gears. Something weird happens. Um, he says, well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? And with that statement, Paul shifts from talking about the sacrifice that was made on our behalf at the altar to what it means to actually live out that new reality of salvation. And we move to the labor. It's now time to clean up. It's now time to say, so what does that mean in my life? How do I get this off of me then? And just like that, you start the messy job of of how does that change things? How do I I clean things up? He starts uh, uh, plainly stating we should not sin like that anymore. Any longer, And and then he quickly winds up in in Romans 7 going, but it's not that easy because the things I want to do, I don't seem to do. The things I don't want to do, I keep doing and I don't know why this is. And it's so crazy. Um, And it's, it's one big long thought from the moment he shifts gears in Romans 6 to go, yeah, we shouldn't sin anymore. We really shouldn't. We shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't. Definitely. Doesn't seem to work out that way. So what in the heck is going on? And then he moves into chapter 8 after this huge crescendo builds up at the end of chapter 7. Chapter 8 starts this way. Starts and ends like this. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's verse 1. The very last verse, I think verse 39, says, Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he moves this whole like, yeah, we shouldn't sin, but what in the heck is going on? We continue to do it. And he finds this big crescendo that... That not even sin, not even our failure can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And just like that, Paul steps away from the labor. With this declaration that that I've been cleansed, I've been cleaned. Like that's what Jesus did for me. There's no condemnation in Christ and and nothing can separate me from his love. And then he steps into a new place. Um, And for the next three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, Paul talks about the story of Israel. Um, He talks about... Uh, in, this, in this holy place, Paul goes back through the story again and he's honest about, about how they had missed God and how that, that opened the door for Gentiles to be grafted into the story. He talks about that um, in chapter 9 and, and, uh, and, and just like the priest would kind of go back through the old story, Paul starts going back through the old story and talking about how because the, the Jews missed it, we get to be brought into that story. And all of those symbols, all of those shadows are no longer just Israel's story, they're our story. And that's what being grafted in means. It means we can now find ourselves in the story of God. That those stories are our stories now. They're not not that they're no longer Israel's story, which Paul gets into. Paul wraps up this time in the holy place with this kind of um, uh, moment where he, in chapter 9 he's talking about what Israel did wrong. In chapter 10 he's talking about the state of Israel like in, in his life. Like in what's going on a bunch of them still don't believe. And in chapter 11 he says, but God is still faithful. He's still going to bring Israel back. It's, it's not that the church came in and got grafted in. And he even says that, hey, don't get cocky because if, if God can graft in a wild branch, don't you think it's pretty easy for him to put the real branch back in? Like, And so he, he talks about the future of Israel and God's going to Uh, is still going to call Israel back. And so he spends these three chapters really digging into the story of Israel, which is just like the holy place, telling the story again. And then in chapter 12, everything changes. As as a literary piece, it says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, that so is so big, uh, because that so is with everything we just did up to this point. I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done let them be a living and holy sacrifice the kind he will find acceptable this is truly the way to worship him and this is a kind of an amazing literary moment in this letter and then when you find this it actually happens in most of his letters um something like this but if you look at everything up to this verse in this book paul is dealing with our personal salvation Like everything in the book up to here is between you and God. It's about the, it's about your sin before God. It's about God's sacrifice for you and how you apply it through faith. It's a, it's, it's very um, vertical up until this point. Uh, The fact that you're a sinner, you not just people, you are a sinner. The fact that Jesus died for you again, not just died for people died for you. Um, The role of faith, your faith, not just faith in general, your faith, um, So that you can now live. The fact that you can't be condemned in Christ. You can't. Not people. You um, as a Gentile. The way that you are now woven into the story of God. Grafted in um, to to the story of Christ. You. And so the Old Testament is your story now. The gospel is your story. Um, And then after all this you talk. 11 chapters of you talk. Paul says. How do we respond to this? (laughs) Now what? Now what do we do? Um, And just like the priest once a year would go into this one place, everything up to that point was about him, how he gets into the presence of God. And then once he's there, he turned around and it was all about the people. It's no longer about him. It's about the. It's about being a blessing and giving a blessing to the people. And Paul says at this point, lay down your life. You've confessed your sin. You've accepted the sacrifice for Jesus. You've washed, um, at least recognized that you've been washed and you find yourself in the story of God. So now it's no longer about you. You did all of that so that you could turn around in this moment and be a blessing. Everything Paul writes after this transition moment from this book to the end is outward. It's horizontal. He did not say anything else about you and God anymore. From this point on, go read the book. From this point on, he talks about your giftings and how you fit into the body. How, how your giftings can be used to make the whole body stronger. Um, he talks about how you can live amongst other believers and, and, and how much forgiveness is going to take and grace is going to take and how you do that. He even talks about when your convictions don't line up and you have liberties and, and someone else thinks it's sin, you don't think it's sin, how you work that stuff out. He talks about that. He talks about how to be a good citizen in the world how you deal with governing authorities. Like all of that happens after this transition point where God is like, now that you've done the vertical part, you go do the horizontal part. It changes the way you live out there. We have a tendency to get it backwards. We put the living comes first, relationship with God comes second sometimes. It's all about the way you live. Paul doesn't do it that way. He's like, it's all about you and God. And, and then you go out. Um, I don't think when, when God gave Moses the picture of the tabernacle that God was... Was saying this is really hard to come into my presence. You got to do a lot to get here. Like um, I think what he was, what God was doing was he was preaching the gospel in picture form. He was saying this is how it works. This is how relationship with God works. This is the gospel. You confess your sin. You 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 accept the sacrifice. You 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 clean up or or allow God to clean you up. You worship and then you serve. You go do something. Um, I think God was was preaching the gospel in metaphor, in, in picture form. And it took an over-explainer, like Paul, and I love Paul for that. It took an, over-ex- an over-explainer an to go, to go. and here's what that picture means. You don't just have to have it in picture form. Let me explain it to you, for all of you Westerners who need um, a, a solid explanation. So how do we respond to this? Have I been talking fast enough? My wife had me scared. Candy's over there taking notes as fast as she can. I see smoke. There's a reason I don't like to just quote like one or 2 standalone verses very often. Um, You know, we have a tendency to preach like a 40-minute sermon that only has like two little verses in it and it's just kind of looking for the hook so we can say the thing we want to say. One of the reasons I don't really like doing that is, uh, and I have to do it from time to time because there are some really important ones, but but so much in the Bible relies on context, on the whole context. And if you miss the context of Romans and you get it out of order, you can get your faith really wonky. Like the order is so important. The order is so important. I think the book of Romans is, is definitely context-driven. Every thought is built upon another thought. The entire book is a message. It's not just you don't just pull a verse out here and then write right? The, the whole book is a message. It's a message that God has been preaching for a long time. Since the tabernacle, God has been preaching this message it uh not just the the parts that say you know homosexuality is a sin in chapter one like we love to quote that part um, not just the part that says "You have peace with God in chapter five because even though I have to go back to that part all the time, not just the part that says there's no condemnation you know in chapter eight, which we love that part, not just the Romans road anybody remember the Romans road anybody Nobody did the Romans road like the little... Judy did. Judy's got me. The little track that walked you through, you know, uh, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and they would take you to. But Christ has died for us, and then you go all the way down. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart in chapter 10, like you get the whole salvation picture, in just three little verses, you just jump. Um, No, the whole book has one solid message, and that is go deeper. Keep moving. Keep going deeper into the tabernacle. This isn't just a... Don't don't just get saved and quit. Don't just work hard to clean up your life and quit. Um, the pattern of the tabernacle and the book of Romans is keep going, keep pressing in, go deeper. Um, the 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 gospel. The gospel is simple. The the actual gospel is really really easy. That's why we love the Romans Road. Man, you can do it in three verses. Boom boom boom. The gospel's clean, simple. We're all sinners. Jesus paid the price. We confess and accept. We're saved. Man, the gospel's nice. We love it. Um, and I'm not trying to mess with that at all. Like, I love I love the simplicity of the gospel message. Um, but though the gospel is simple, its impact is never ending. The impact of the gospel never quits. Its effect on your relationship with God is never ending. The gospel's effect on your relationship with others just keeps going deeper and deeper and more challenging. Like, if, if you think you ever reached a point where, like, I am now at peace with everyone, right? Please, like it, the gospel will continue to challenge you to forgive, continue to challenge you to, to have grace, continue to challenge you to love better and reach out more uh, and, and be a bigger blessing. You'll never come to an end of that. The gospel's impact on you will never change. The, the, the gospel will find more and more in you that needs to be surrendered to Christ and needs to grow and needs to expand and needs to, to love better. Until you are like Christ The gospel is not done with you. It is not done working on you. So then and the way you move in the world, the gospel will never will never stop working on that. Like we all have this tendency to be like, man, I just want to like I've worked so hard to get this point. Why am I still struggling? Because the gospel never stops making us better. It never stops like pushing on us and finding more to heal and finding more um, to deepen. So the way I'd love to respond to this gospel uh, or this message today is to say don't stop. Don't settle. Um, don't just accept that, that you're a sinner and, and that's all it takes. There's a sacrifice for your sin that you need to to accept uh, and be saved. Don't just accept Jesus and think that that's it forever. Um, God wants you to clean up and wrestle with things and, and, and continue to to grow and change. Don't just think that life is all about sin management because it's not. It goes much, much deeper than that. The, the goal is to accept the victory of Christ's death um, that that allows you to, to walk in a new kind of life. And don't just accept that that victory and keep getting smarter and smarter and more spiritually fat. Um, lay down your life. Go all in um, for God. However much you've changed, there's more changing to do. However much you've learned to love, there's more loving to do. However much you've healed, there is more healing to do. However much you serve, there is more serving to do and you can serve better. However much you've sacrificed, there's still more to be done. You're not done. Um, I don't care if you just recently started following Jesus or you've been doing this for a lifetime. Keep going deeper. It goes on. Don't ever settle. Um, I've talked uh, to several people um, this Lent who are fairly experienced Christians who felt like they kind of got the crud kicked out of them this Lent. Like God was just working deep. Like, man, I'm one of them. Like I was a. I made it about like a day into Lent. You know, we were trying to do the no criticizing people. I made it like a day in, and I was just like vomiting criticism. And I'm not normally like that. I was like, God, what are, you, what are you doing to me? Like, I didn't even know I had this in me. We went on a date night, and I was just like, for like the first 20, and Esther didn't say a word, so I blame her. Like, she just let me go on, let me go on breaking my, my fast. But I was just like, man, this person, that person, man, this person. I was like, holy cow, what am I doing? This is literally what I'm supposed to be fasting. Like and and that was just like the beginning of it. When it was rough, I realized, man, I got a lot of work to do. I got a lot of work to do. And uh, so and so when we think about all the weird little butterfly moments that brought us into this place today, this morning to learn about this book, probably about as many as it took to to write this book, so we could study it. All of that is not a coincidence. God brought us into this place for a plan and a purpose. For a reason. And don't ever settle. Don't ever just settle and think that we're all good. So my prayer, and honestly this is my prayer for this whole year, is that God would 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 start to go crazy deep in us here at Open Table Community Church. And that in the end, however God does it, the end result will be this really deep, long lasting life transformation. Because that's what we need. The gospel shouldn't be like just this cute thing that we that we put on our, you know, like a bumper sticker. (laughs) the gospel should transform us it should change us and it should never ever stop doing that so please jump on board let's go deep together um, and see what God does